Hello and welcome to this, the 21st episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. Can you believe it? 21. Good Jesus, we're keeping this thing ticking over. Um, I am, of course, your host, Ingus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And as ever, we are bringing you this podcast free of charge. We've promised that we'll never ever charge for these podcasts and by Jesus don't I regret that decision now. With the amount of work we're putting into these things and the amount of people that are listening out there, this could have been a nice little thing to keep us ticking over but instead we're doing what, we're sticking to our guns, we're doing like we said we would and we're bringing this to you every week. New conversation with a new theatre maker absolutely free of charge. What are we asking for in return for that? Absolutely nothing to come directly to us but we are asking that you would support in general Irish theatre. Best way to do that is to go out and just buy some tickets. There is so much great stuff on at the moment. It just seems that show after show is stacking up on top of the other at the moment. There is a huge selection out there. So get out and buy yourself some tickets, whether that's top price tickets somewhere posh, whether it's, you know, tenor tickets to some of the more fringe venues out there, whatever that is. Or, as we always say, go and check out one of the crowdsourcing websites, particularly Fundit.ie, who often run great campaigns from theatre companies there looking to crowdsource their forthcoming productions. Uh, donations start from as low as a fiver and there are always great rewards over there as well and you get to feel like you're part of the action like you're helping to contribute make this great Irish theatre that's going on out there there are of course many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket go and tell people about this, this podcast the more you spread the word about the podcast the more the podcast can spread the word about the shows and the people that are out there and what's going on so tell people about it whether that's in person over a cup of coffee just mention Jesus I was listening to that during the week or share the link on your Facebook page or just retweet the link that we'll put out from Rise Productions. You can subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes, but if you don't have iTunes or you're not into subscribing, you can always stream these podcasts from the Fight Night website, which is fightnight.ie, and also we're carried by radiomade.ie as well. You can get us uh, streamed over there as well. Do go back and listen to all the other episodes we've put out over the years. Uh, I say over the years? Man, it doesn't it feels that long, but it hasn't really been. Um, But the last, you know, 21 episodes, as we're now up to now, uh, there's a huge body of work there to go back, and, and I think we do have a nice mix of of designers, directors, writers, producers, administrators, actors. Uh, So it's a nice cross-section of the theatre community of what's going on out there at the moment, how people are feeling, what their hopes and dreams are. A nice cross-section, a nice insight into the world of Irish theatre. If you can leave us a review over there, it helps us hugely uh, just in in bumping us up in iTunes search algorithms and all that kind of crazy tech stuff that I know very little about. But I do know that leaving us a review uh, does wonders in terms of boosting chart position and stuff. And again, all that profile stuff really helps us out in getting the word out there about what's been going on. So if you've been saying to yourself, God, one of these days I must go over and leave a review or click their five star rating system which really is only one click that's not asking a huge amount Uh, we'd really ask that this would be the week that you'd go and do it Uh, it's a simple thing to do won't take a huge amount of your time uh, and really helps us and helps us spread the word about what's going on in Irish theatre you can always follow us on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland and you can follow us on Twitter we're at Rise Ireland so here we are for another week and another guest and this one I know I say this pretty often on the show but this one really is a special one um, it's one I had been hoping to do but I've been a little uneasy about and then when I put the call out on Facebook a few weeks back um, as to who people would like to see we, we as guests on the show we had this overwhelming response um, from a wide range of people both within the business and outside the business of who they wanted to hear from who they wanted an insight from and there was one name that came up a couple of times and as soon as it came up uh, 
uh, from a couple of different sources, a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, Jesus, yeah, that'd be great. And uh, and I felt that gave me the license to do it, even though I'd always wanted to do. So this week, our guest is the exceptional Ronnie Masterson, who, apart from being uh, one of the most exceptional actresses out there with uh, a career that has spanned across eight different decades in Irish theatre, which is kind of staggering. Uh, she also happens to be my granny, uh, and and in that first generation of the three generations of theatre makers I always bang on about. Um, I, you know, a wonderful performer who has such an insight, particularly into those uh, those early days and kind of that golden era in the Abbey, and talking about you know, working with so many of the great legendary names there uh, and kind of becoming one of those great legendary names herself. Uh, and I love the fact that she's still absolutely going strong, still working to this day, still working more than the rest of us put together on high profile stuff, as you'll hear her talk about in the interview. Look, as usual, I try not to bang on too much before we get into this. Let's just get into the meat of it. This is my granny, the wonderful Ronnie Masterson. The wonderful Ronnie Masterson. Thank you so much for agreeing to come and have a chat to us. I am delighted you're my favourite nephew. Your <laughs> favourite grandson. Grandson. <laughs> Actually, that's old age. <laughs> right. What we will do is we will start off this with the same question we start off every week. Um, when did it first occur to you that a career in the theatre might be for you? Was there a light bulb moment? What, what set you off on this magical journey? Well, I used to take part in plays in school. Okay. And I was entered in the Gaelic section of, well, it was always Gaelic, come to think of it, it was Feshaw Clear. Right. And believe it or not, the adjudicator was a gentleman called Ernon de Blythe. Who might who, be better known to many people as Ernest Blythe. Exactly. But he was running the Abbey Theatre. And uh, for some strange reason, he liked the work. And he gave me a scholarship to the Irish School of Acting, the Gaelic School of Acting. And were there two parallel schools there, there then at the time? Right, there okay. Were. Yeah, there was an English one and an Irish one. And it was either once or twice a week, I can't remember now. But while I was doing that, there was always a Gaelic play went on for a Sunday and a Monday. Right. About every two months, three months or so. And I always seemed to be cast in those. And at that stage, my parents were getting a little bit anxious. And they thought... It'd be lovely to have something to fall back on, but it'd be a good idea to try and do something that would give you a steady job in case it didn't work. Now, I could understand where they were coming from. And there was an advertisement in the paper for the National Health. And it had only got together because up to that, it was little pockets here, there, and it was made into a National Health. Right. And so I was enrolled for two months coming up to the exam three nights a week to go and study for this exam. This is an exam to get into the National Health then? Yes. Right, okay. In that three months, I went to two <laughs> nights. You can't be saying that as my granny. What am I, I should be going to school and learning and doing all these studies. Uh, you're old enough now. That's all right, I'm at the far side. side. But uh, the other nights, I was standing at the back of the auditorium in the old Abbey, this is the old Abbey I'm talking right, about okay. now, before the fire. And I used to be standing at the back, watching what was going on. And um, when the results came out, I broke my heart. Out of something like 15,000 people, I got first. Having not bothered to attend anything yes. more than a handful of classes. Right. 
And in the meantime, I had been working for, before we had equity, we had a thing called WAMA. Yes. The Writers, Actors, Artists and Musicians Association. And Liam Redmond was the General Secretary and I was his secretary. Okay. And I, I was doing that. And um, I didn't mind giving up that because I would have been going in the direction of the theatre anyway. But the other thing. Anyway, I was called to start in the next Monday. And I rang them and I said, I'm terribly sorry, but I can't go next Monday. I have got to give two weeks notice where I am working. And they said, oh, I see. So I got my two weeks notice. I arrived in and I was put into the, the typing pool and another awful great big machine that you used to shove here, there and yonder and put the names and addresses on the, the cards where the stamps went on. And I was only about half an hour there and this gentleman arrived in with hands behind the back and walked over and said, well, Miss Masterson, how are you enjoying working here? And I said, I don't know, I'm only here half an hour. And he said, oh, I see, and he walked out. And when he was gone, they clothed around me. That was the general secretary. What did he say to you? <laughs> so I told him what I said. <laughs> anyway, I was working there. And at that stage, Thomas McConnor had been brought in to do with scenic design. Yes. But then he wanted to direct. And the first thing he was doing was Dear Mother's Grania. And he asked me, would I play Grania? Okay. And much to the chagrin of the leading lady in the Abbey at that time, whose name I'm not going to mention, but who thought she deserved it. Uh, he said, I want you to come in and do an audition. So I did the audition and I got it. Jesus. <laughs> and uh, never made me very pleasant, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, I was in that for oh, a couple of years. And while I was in there about a year, after that somebody came and said there's a young man who's just come in and he wants to know how do you do about getting your card stamped and we told him to come to you and he came and he said miss masterson would you tell me how do i what do i do with stamping the card and like the bitch that i was i said did you read the leaflet so that was my introduction to ray mcanally wow so you were already there at oh, the end, yes. long before he ever oh, arrived. Yes, indeed. And in the meantime, he was only in there when he was reformed. Uh, uh, right. And himself were a, a name. And they were going down to. You had to. You, in, in those days, you had to go to the Gaeltacht for your holidays. But they were paid for by Ernest Blythe. Wow, to, to make sure everyone had the Irish language standard Absolutely. to be doing the plays. Yeah, he was right. The National yeah. Theatre. A lot of people didn't like it. But uh, Ray was down in Kerry, and I had went, I had went, my God, where's my grammar <laughs> gone to? I had gone over to Galway, because there was a gentleman that I met when I was in Galway, he was a medical student, and I went to a black girl thought, uh, so that I would see him. Anyway, um, when we all got back to Dublin, Rita had decided Oh God, I couldn't marry that man. And she right. broke it off. And I was feeling very sorry for him because he had been a pioneer and the badge was gone right. and he was going out drinking with all the young people. 
So I tried to get him after we'd be playing whatever it was, go over and uh, have a cup of tea and coffee and things. You right. See, and some cakes, which he did. And then he would be on the tram home. Believe you know me, this is how long this goat this is. This was on the tram. And what I didn't realise was he was then going to the pubs <laughs> to join all the rest of them. A man after my own horse. Well, indeed, <laughs> quite. But anyway, that's the way it worked out. Wow. Um, eventually, I can't remember what came up. They were cutting down the numbers or something. And Rhea Mooney decided that... Um, she didn't think the Abbey was the place for me. Right. And so I lost my job, which was grand. And I went to working for a German gentleman as his secretary. And I left him. And in the meantime, Ray and I had, you know, uh, made a match of it. And yes. we got married. Right. And he was doing stuff in the Abbey and I was also being brought in especially for the Irish plays yes I mean because there would have been a huge amount of Irish stuff going on at that time there was yeah but anyway uh, that was the situation so um, we were only six weeks married and my father who worked in the Irish Independent night worker came home always at about three or four in the morning and if there was any bad news he wakened my mother to tell them tell her (laughs) So he wakened her this morning and said, you better get that pair out of bed because the house we had put a money down on yeah. uh, wasn't quite finished, so we were staying with them. And uh, she said, I'm not going to call them at this hour of the morning. She said, I'll leave them. I mean, it might be the last sleep they'd get. So she called us about 8 o'clock, a little bit early, and she said, you want to get up a little bit earlier because there's been a bit of a fire in the abbey. So we knew you couldn't have a bit of a fire in the abbey. Yes. It was a tinderbox you know okay so anyway we got up we went down and it was fascinating because when you walked into the theater the foyer looked as if nothing had happened really oh yeah and all those lovely oil paintings they were all there they were all perfect and we went down the stairs the auditorium was perfect except that you could hear the water dripping on the stage over the footlights, down onto the piano. And I'll never forget that, what was happening to the piano. Anyway, what happened was we had to try and salvage as much as we could as the costumes. Ray and Sean Mooney, they went out and they bought yards and yards and yards and yards of rope. Right. And the old abbey, the balcony, was a horseshoe shape. So they tied the rope from one side of that to the other. Right. And I'll never forget seeing Ray walking along the edge of the top of the, the seats in the auditorium. Right. Without holding on to anything to do them from one side to the other. I was sorting out the costumes, three piles, the ones that were burnt to bits and they were there, the ones that were perfectly all right, and then the ones that, well, could do with repairs, you know. Right. And... Uh, um, May Craig who was one of the oldest actresses there she was a great help to me because I would say to her what was that used for and she was able to tell me what play it came from because she had been there for years and yeah, years of course. You know? and uh, 
another young member of the company whose name I refuse to mention, arrived in with a friend and he said, will you show us where the dangers are? So I needn't tell you, I didn't give him the answer, but either Ray or Sean Mooney gave him the answer. Left not, him very I will not doubt. put it on your tape, darling, what yeah. I said to him. But anyway, Ernest Blythe had come down when the fire was on. Maura Pingy and, and Jeff Golden, they were, needless to say, in one of the late hour pubs. Right. They had come down. Blythe, when he was watching the place on fire, turned to them and said, no one will lose one day's work. Which is perfectly true. Because the next night, Plowing the Stars, with the four sets, went on in the Little Peacock, which held 101 people. Wow. And the only thing they were short of was the uniform of the Forester. Right. And they put an appeal out on the daily paper, the radio. Right. And they got one for that night. Someone arrived up with the Foresters uniform. Ray McAnally was the last one who spoke on the stage because he was one of the, the um, two English soldiers. Yes. You know? And singing, of all things, keep the home fires burning. And they were the last words spoken on the old Abbey stage. Exactly. By Ray McAnally. Wow. They were also the last ones spoken on the Peacock stage because after about three weeks they were told, sorry, you know, you have to clear out of here. Right. And the, the a, a theatre had just been finished in, oh God, a factory up, I can't remember the name of it now, on the way up to, to, to um, the state, the railway station. Right. And it was offered to the Abbey as a place to go on to. They could sort themselves out. In the meantime, Sheila Richards had asked me to go to um, the uh, thing over in Scotland, the festival. Right, okay. And I was only six weeks married, and I said, ah, no. And she came to me the morning after the fire, and she said, is it still on? And I said, I'll talk to Ray, and we both decided, well, one of us will be working. Yeah, of course. Because we didn't think that... It, it it would have been continued, and there nobody course. nobody but Ernest Blythe could have done that. So now Ernest Blythe's a man who comes in for quite a bit of stick for quite a number of reasons, but that's yes. certain. That was certainly a decent thing to stand up and yeah, say. No one's going to lose a day. What they were doing was they were losing sight of the fact that Ernest Blythe was not an artist, but he ran the theatre. Yes, and in those days, if a new play went on on the Monday night. By the way, you'd be glad to know, darling, our rehearsals for new plays was two weeks. <laughs> and by Wednesday of the first week, he knew it would have to come off. Wow. That it wasn't going to run. And he always brought back the famous one. Oh God, what's the name? But, but the one where she broke the statue of the Blessed Virgin. And that was what brought everybody into it. Oh, to be outraged at that? Oh, no, they just thought, my God. I mean, at that stage, it meant an awful lot to see the statue being broken. They were terribly upset over it. But that saved the bacon of the Abbey. Wow. But Ernest Blythe was able to keep the theatre going without anybody losing a day's work. That's remarkable. And I'm sorry, but he may not have been an artist, 
Yes. We did a lot of other things. And he also said to me, he said, when you're getting married, he said, please don't invite me to your wedding because I wouldn't like to see you spending money like that. But when you're getting married, you tell me that you're getting a house for yourself. At that stage, everybody was in flats. Yes. But he said, when you get settled in there, if you'd invite myself and my wife over for a cup of tea, which he did come. Wow. So you can see why I see him in that light. Yeah. I mean, he's not an artist, never was. Yes, but never claimed to be. But he managed to run the Abbey yeah. through thick and thin. Yeah. And that's why I have respect for him, you know. Tell me a bit more about the Abbey in those early days, the kind of 40s, 50s time. Were there people, had you been going to the Abbey much when you were younger as a teenager or whatever else, were there people that you looked up to that were still there maybe when you were yeah. around? My parents used to go, Daddy was on night work and he didn't work on a Saturday night and they went to every new play that was in the Abbey and as a treat, if you got an exam or if you got this or that, they brought you. Right, okay. So I was introduced to the theatre. We all were, you know, from quite young. Yeah. And... um that I, I was going to the Abbey, well, no, not very often. I yes. mean, once every two or three years, maybe, okay. you know. Uh, but at least I knew what it was about, yeah. you know. And so when I went in, F.J. McCormick was there. Wow, this I, is amazing. Eileen Crow was there. Wow. May Craig was there. And a few others. Now, people talk about uh, Harry Brogan, but Harry Brogan was much later on. And yes. he, he worked as a, you know, in, as an amateur sort of thing. But I worked with all these people. But that must have been amazing for you, because presumably to have grown up watching them on Absolutely. these big special treats and now to be sharing the stage it with them. wonderful. Because after that was my favourite thing. And obviously when I first went into the Abbey, it was also on Plough. So I love that there's the tie in through yeah. the family generations for that. Yeah, exactly. But for me to have been, you know, only a few months before that, spending my money to go and see the Owen Rose or the Derville Crotties or exactly. the Cathy Beltons of the yeah. world, and yeah. then to be there sharing a stage yeah. with them. I love that. That kind of continuity through the generations is the one a great thing, thing that bothers me terribly, and I've never been able to get hold of it. If at the, when the fire was on, and when they had, as I say, they'd been hanging out the clothes to dry in the thing and looking at it from the stage, you were looking at this horseshoe with rows and rows and rows of things drying, and it was published in one of the papers. and I've never been able to get hold of it. Really, I'd love to have had it, you know. Where would you get it? You know? I'm sure National Library, maybe we might track that one down. Yeah, is it also true that one of the few things uh, from the back to survive the fire was your either wedding cert or That's papal right. blessing or something? That's right, because the date was wrong on it. And we had brought it in, and um, I, I think it was Jeff Golden right. said that he would change it instead of being the fourth, it was, should have been the sixth. Okay. And it was in the dressing room, uh, in the men's dressing room. There was only, it's only four dressing rooms, you know. Okay. And they had all collapsed. Uh, and they, they collapsed on, the, on that angle, you see. Right. And they were resting on down in the scene dock, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, a dresser. Okay. And they were resting on that. And Veer Dodgen, who was one of the, the um, design people, he had tied himself to a rope and he was climbing down this thing and sat in his office. I mean, it was an unbelievable situation. Wow. You know? But <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it, it was grand. We got it. And they, it's still in the brown paper. I have it there. And it's it's smouldered on the outside. But miraculously but made it burn. through. 
That is And there was remarkable. something else. I'm trying to, there was something else the same like that, that miraculously it was found, you know? Wow. So, I mean, you know, a bit of a history. Absolutely. Well, then, let's talk about when you ultimately went freelance and yourself and the esteemed Mr. McAnally set up Old Key Productions, which was your own independent company. That's right. How easy or difficult was it to have your own independent company at the time? And, and what was that like? Was that touring around the country then? Was it doing shows in Dublin? All of the above? Oh, we did a lot of shows in Dublin. Yeah. And then we would take stuff out on tour. Um, but the thing that saved our lives was the fact about uh, Ray getting me over to England to see Kennedy's children. Okay. And he wanted to put it on. And we hired a theatre for 13 weeks. And the, you know the way the, the, the correspondents sometimes write before the thing opens? Yes. And they thought, what were we thinking of to be putting on Kennedy's children after John F. Kennedy being now dead and everything? And they couldn't see that we were talking about the era. Yes. And on the first night, um, oh God, what was his name? Who later on ran, rang the gaiety. Uh, he came round and he said oh god that's a wonderful show have you a saver wow. and we didn't have and we knew we didn't have because it had been such a success everywhere the, the um, author was there the first night right? and he said I have seen eight productions of this and I've never seen anything as good Ray directed it and there are four characters in it, yes. all separate, never spoke to each other. Right. And I was one of the characters. I was also the business manager. Yes, And he indeed. was the director. And uh, Bob Head, the scenic designer, made a set for us without charging us anything, out of bits and pieces of everything. Phyllis Ryan came into us on the week. The second, we were all the time thinking, "What can we put on? It's not going to cost a lot of money. We must." Keep was it clear at that early stage from the kind of the hatchet job that critics had done beforehand that this just it wasn't going to do the business? And oh, absolutely. absolutely, and you had you had what thirteen weeks to yeah. to fill. But on the second week, we were still trying to figure out, and Barry Casson came in, and the three of us would be sitting down trying to figure things out. And the next thing, Phyllis Ryan arrived in, and she said, "I'm just back." from the Stoll Writers Week. That is his latest book, Letters of a Matchmaker. From I intended to John put B. on King. a show with that, you use it, which was terribly generous of her. She gave it to us, that was Thursday. I went over to Easton's, I bought three copies, one for Ray, one for him, one for me. And the next morning they clung together the first half of it and I came home and I typed it the next day which was Saturday we did that the second half and meantime Bob Head had put the thing together and there was no question of trying to memorise it well not over at the space of a weekend you, you couldn't. couldn't so we decided it's letters of a matchmaker I played all the women's parts he played all the men's parts and we held the book and essentially it was put together over the weekend between Ray and Barry Casson. That's right. Devised, adapted, <coughs> That's right. rehearsed. Two and a half days. We never had an empty seat for the rest of the run. Wow. But there was always a couple of people who walked out each night. Okay. But at the same time, 
nuns and priests were sitting in there. <laughs> and it was all these, you know... Well, yes. they thought, oh, this is awful. Yeah. And they left. And wow. it saved our bacon and saved our house because we were going to lose the house. Really? It, well, if, if, you, if you couldn't have filled those 13 weeks? We afforded it. You know? Wow. So... That was one of the good ones. Absolutely. It says a lot for the generosity of Phyllis Ryan. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, the generosity that we got from so many people Yeah. was absolutely marvellous. I mean, Bob Head doing a set. Yeah. And not wanting to charge for it. Barry Casson, who wouldn't charge for it to, to, to direct us. Yeah. And then he, he reduced his... Um, oh, oh, yes. Our friend, the, the author. John V. Yeah. Who always charged... 10% yes gave it to us for 5% because of the work that had been done to make it into a stage play really yeah so I mean you know there's a, that's the one thing about working in theatre and you must know that yeah. when there's anything going wrong everybody rallies around you god that's you know? remarkable and it was great and we did a lot of work in the Olympia with Phyllis yes Phyllis I, I did a lot of plays that Phyllis had done and when um the field came up, the John B. Keane play. Uh, she cast me in it, and she hadn't got the man for the field. And she knew damn well he was in England. When he came over, he read the script. He said, "Wait, you see me getting this part," <laughs> and he rang her. And that's who she wanted. Of course, she wasn't going to ask him. In case he turned around, after playing at the West End, I'm not going to play at the Olympia. But she knew if Couldn't you just... wait to get it. If you had the script knocking around in the house, you'd have to read it. Exactly. <laughs> she knew how to produce a show, didn't oh, she? Oh, she was a very clever lady. <laughs> she was a very clever lady, you know. Wow. And I mean, she never made a fortune out of it. Hmm. But she gave so much employment to actors. Well, the one thing I'll always say for Phyllis Ryan is that occasionally... Because when I, I, I had the great honour of working with her on the first thing I ever did when I was only a 15 year old kid doing well, the AIDS plays that, yeah. but I always remember how keen she was to bring on the next generation yeah. and develop and promote whereas you get some more senior actors who want to shut up shop pull up the rope ladder oh, yeah. we're all right Jack and yeah, and, uh, and put younger actors down yeah. but I, I loved that generosity of spirit and clearly that's something that she always had well exactly, exactly. I know she's the most generous lady she really was Mind you, you never could tell what the humour was. Okay. But, um, you know, she, so she's had it. But <laughs> her stage manager, you say, oh, God, look at her. And she'd say to her, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Where none of us would dare yes. <coughs> say it to her, Is you know. Is it Bambi with fangs she was affectionately That's referred right. to? That's absolutely I right. I like it. I never called her that. No, I? not to her face anyway. Well, I, I owed her too much love. Yeah. You oh, know. I'd well believe it. Right, we have mentioned... Mr. Ray McAnally quite a few times. We we have to have a chat. How good was he? I mean, is how how talented an actor was he? He was out on his own. A brilliant actor. Yeah. But he was a better director because he was happier when he was directing. Because he got to be in charge. Absolutely. Right. But it was never sort of known you know but that was it uh, but he was a super super actor he yeah. really was and I mean without sort of going to outrageous makeup or this kind of thing the characterization was always perfect 
Right. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, he was. He was one of the one of the best. There's no doubt, whatever about it. And was that clear early on, or was that something he grew into with kind of practice over the years? I mean, one of the things I see about actors nowadays is that you don't get the consistency of working week in week out that you would have get with the old company true. system or the That's rep system true, yes. so is that something that was innate in him to begin with or was it something that developed just through working that hard over the years I would say it was in him because uh, while he was in St. Eunan's College he had written the play he had written the musical with another member yeah. and he had played in them Right. Like, but he was very much for theatre, and he went, he went off with a touring company, and his mother, who was the wife of a bank manager, was horrified, and thought she'd never get him out of it fast enough. Right. Okay. Oh, Running yeah. away with the circus. Oh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> no, it, he was. He was out on his own. There's no doubt whatever about that. Wow. Yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously I was. I was too young to have ever seen him on stage, but I have subsequently gone back, now that this is what I do for a living, mm. I've subsequently gone back to re-watch the movies yeah. and the TV stuff. Yeah. And it seems to me that there's stuff there in terms of screen presence that you can't teach, that is innate. Oh, yes. It's just yeah. terrifying that to have that, that power on screen as well. I mean, yeah. I can kind of understand it on stage, mm. but to be also be able to make it transfer on yeah. screen as well is... Yeah. is I know, he, he was out on his own. Yeah. It's, no uh, doubt about it. It's interesting. So then, we'll talk a bit about more recent stuff then, possibly. Um, because I love the fact that you're absolutely still trucking away last way. I mean, there are kind of big stuff over the last, say, decade or whatever, would be um, the Angela's Ashes movie that Alan Parker directed, oh, which yes. had been such a huge phenomenon yeah. from the book and whatever else. Mm. Am I right in thinking you weren't a huge fan of the book to begin with? Uh, yes. Right. Okay. Yes, but uh, it was well put together for the for the screen, and the character, I, I was impressed with. Yes, anyway, I loved playing it. the granny. Yeah, you know, played the granny. You know, and and I mean, I had without doubt, I had the best script. Yes, in it. That's very true. You know, and uh, I I I was sort of playing number three on the cast. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh, the kids, of course, were stealing. The, the the limelight, you know? Yes, indeed. How were the kids? Were they wonderful throughout or obnoxious at times in they the way were, the kids usually they are? They were wonderful kids. Ah, great. And the, the, there was twins in it who were quite young. Yeah. And one of them dies in the thing. Yes. But they, the other fellow just played the part because they were identical twins, sure. you know, like that. No, that, that was a great pleasure to have worked in. And he was a lovely director, you know. Did you used to talk an awful lot of soccer results with Alan Parker? Did I, did I even told me that story before? <laughs> I love the idea that you're not swapping theatre stories or movie stories on oh, set, but just fun. talking football. Absolutely, results. football. Um, now, there's another one that sticks out in my mind because it was the big show at the Abbey, and I think also went off to Edinburgh Film Festival as well, the, the barbaric comedies. Oh, yes. That our friend, the Spanish director, the Spanish came director. over for. Was yes, quite. Beato, Cal Calito Beato or something was his name? Something like something that. Something like that. Something like that, I can't but remember. But the protests that went on, again, before that show ever went up, I remember Absolutely. there was letter-writing campaigns and all I that know, stuff. I know, And he was a very good director, he worked from nine in the morning until nine at night time, but accepted the fact that we said, well, sorry, we only do four hours at a time. Yes. And you can't get more than eight hours out of us. Yes. So he worked out the rehearsals, but he never had a bite to eat or anything. 
in the 12 hours that he worked. Really? And you guys would come in for your standard two-session day Yeah. Th- around that? Yeah, you'd either do the morning and the night one or... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But uh, I, he was great. And for some strange reason, he took a liking to me. Right. And he said, uh, you Catholic? And I said, yes, I am. Uh, I am Catholic too, but I don't go. But you are Catholic. And we have to have the, the this uh, Paternoster and uh, the, the Hail Mary. And uh, these people mightn't know it because not everybody now prays. So you will teach them. And he got them all together and said, every one of them, of course, could have taught me, you know. So he said, I want you to know that Miss Masterson here is going to take you and teach you how to say the Paternoster. <laughs> ah, he was I love great. It. Yeah, he was that's... Great. Uh, yeah, that, that's just, it's, it was a remarkable show. It went on. It was a long old show as well. Oh, it was. But, uh, About three and a half hours of yeah, it ran. But uh, <coughs> remarkable stuff. And I, I love the fact that you're still going and that only a couple of weeks ago you were that's shooting right. on the new Neil Jordan movie. With, I was indeed, darling. With is, the up and coming young actress. Yes, indeed. Miss Saoirse ah, Ronan. She, yeah, she's a lovely kid. Is she? Ah, she is. She's a lovely kid. And what interested me was that uh, at that age, when she's just over the age yeah. now, but when she was a bit younger, obviously she had to have a chaperone. Yes. And it was always either her mother or her father. Yeah. And her mother was always around the place. And it was very funny. He said, have to keep an eye on her. Right. And because otherwise I don't want her losing the run of herself. Yeah. So she was, she came from a very balanced family. Do you know right. what I mean? Well, that certainly seems to be the vibe because she has been so successful over the last number of years yeah. going from movie to movie to movie that that's the kind of thing that could send you to Lally very quickly but certainly anything I've seen of her in terms of interviews no, and stuff, she's, she's, a very, she's a very balanced young lady there's only one problem go on well at my age uh, my hearing isn't as good as it used to was right and <laughs> she was standing of course uh, the wonderful thing was I was all day in the bed That if only we get that written to all our contracts it'd be oh, great oh that was wonderful you know <laughs> And she was sort of picking up my wrist and things like that. But I couldn't hear her. I had to lip read what she was saying. Right, okay. Because she was definitely, she's done more th- more film work yes. than she has stage work. Yeah. And, you know, she would have had a, a, a mic on her anyway. Yes, of course. So, I mean, there wouldn't be any problem when they started putting it together. Yeah. But for an old one like me, <laughs> 86 years of age, I know, come on. <laughs> uh, and so well, that's, I, I love the fact that, you know, you don't see me going to work with Neil Jordan. It's great, but that was your first time working with Neil Jordan, was I it? had never worked with Neil Jordan. Before. Even though Ray had a, a good few times. Oh, he had, yeah. Um, and how was Mr. Jordan? He was great. Lovely. He was great. Ah, brilliant. Lovely so, guy. That's fantastic. I, I, I love the fact that you're still going strong. I love the fact that you're still working with the best in the business. Which is great. <laughs> well, that is the thing. wonderful thing about being an actor. I mean, if I became 90 and the monster 90 year old. Yeah. I mightn't get that far of another four years to go. Right, okay. But, but you're hanging in tough that, enough for so far. If I got that far, you know, I, I would be able to play it. That's brilliant. I absolutely Which love it. Which is great. That's great. Thank you so much for having the chat to us today. Great to get that that take on the business, particularly those early days in the Abbey, because for so many of us out there, that's just a resource that we don't have. Lovely to get an inside track on it. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Not at all, love. (laughs) 
So there you have it, the inspirational Ronnie Masterson, uh, just a lady I have so much time for, for obvious reasons, but also, you know, you look back on a, on a career that has spanned as long as hers has, that has covered as much as it has, the, the kind of people she's worked with, the way in which she'd work, uh, like I said, just so inspirational, um, you know, the, the, the courage to be leaving the, the steady setup of the Abbey Company to go out on your own uh, with an independent production company, uh, you know, would have been quite a risk at the time, and obviously they pulled it off to, to huge success in in many cases, um, just a, an amazing insight, particularly into those early days uh, at the Abbey. Because, like I said, you know, we just we don't have that as a resource anywhere else to hear those stories of what it was like. We all know that the fire happened, but what was it like to be there, sifting through the rubble? Effectively, what was it like to be sorting those costumes? What was it like to be looking a bit like workers in the Dell factory in Limerick now to have you know a newly married couple and seeing you know the potential for both wages to be gone from the house. Um, and, you know, nice to hear an interesting slant and a different take on, on the legacy of Ernest Blythe. Not everybody sings his praises, but, you know, he's a guy who stood there and said no one will lose a day's pay from this and stuck to his word. Uh, a remarkable story, a remarkable insight into, you know, Irish theatre that uh, that we just don't get elsewhere. So I hope that was an interesting one for you. Uh, like I said, we try and bring as much balance to these conversations as possible and for every young hot up-and-coming guy we have on it's interesting to have that that other side the flip side to it a little bit more history a little bit more insight into how we've got to where we are today um you know and she's an incredible woman she's still going strong still getting more work than the rest of us put together i love the fact that it's kind of just a throwaway thing that i'm working on the new neil jordan movie with saoirse ronan and stuff uh whereas the rest of us will be killing to get those opportunities uh and i also love the fact that she's saying that if she you know can stick around to 90 she'd still like to be working away at 90 which is just amazing ambition at that stage to still have it I love it I love her she's brilliant uh, I hope that's been a nice little half an hour of an insight uh, into her life and career for you guys too and uh, and you can keep an eye out for her and go back and check out a lot of her work that you can find on, uh, on screen as well so look that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around the country um, the big one obviously that it's finally come is uh, Alice in Funderland at the Abbey which is kicking off uh, I think tomorrow evening with previews um, we done our bit for the Alice in Wonderland show we've had obviously Philly who's the writer on as the as a podcast guest we have had Keith Hanna on as a podcast guest who's part of the cast uh, also in the cast is Paul Reed, who we've had on as a guest and uh, and backstage on that show will be the wonderful Tar- Tara Furlong from a couple of weeks ago so we've been doing our best to support and promote this show I think it's it's a proper exciting one. It's it's it, it's got the whole of Dublin theatre kind of electrified and, and kind of really hotly anticipating what's going to go on. I can't wait to get in to see it. I think it's going to be something special. Um, also, at the Gaiety, we have Dear Frankie is still running there. Um, at Project, we have uh, Agamemnon from Classic Stage Ireland, and that'll be followed by Durang Durang, which is backed by huge demand, having played to rave reviews last year. Um, that's six short comedies, and let's face it, who doesn't need a laugh at the moment? Um, and a properly exciting cast in there too. I mean, Donica O'Dee's in there, Camille Ross is there, Kieran O'Brien, who's hardly ever outside of the Abbey, uh, is in there too. And the wonderful Valerie O'Connor, who may just be the most underrated actress in Dublin right now. Um, she's coming straight off the back of Rough Magic's Plaza Suite, uh, and I just think she's absolutely super. I had the great privilege and honour of working with her back on... Um, the show that I did with Aoife Spillane, Hinks, Serious Money, uh, as part of the Rough Magic Seeds programme. I just think she's a super performer, uh, and that's certainly one to go and book your tickets for. Uh, upstairs at Project, we have Tiny Place for Ireland continuing, which has been a runaway sellout success for the good folks at Fishamble, so I'm absolutely delighted for that. 
That's going to be followed by choreographer Ella Clark's new dance piece, The Fall, which looks absolutely intriguing. Um, the brilliant Connor Madden among the performers there, so that's definitely one to check out. The Viking Theatre at the Sheds has An Evening with Oscar Wilde, and that'll be followed by March Away My Brothers. Da is continuing at the gate. I'm pretty sure they've extended that run, but I don't think there's too much left, so if you're thinking of planning to still get into that, make sure you do it sooner rather than later. Uh, Monster Clock is still at Smock Alley, and as you heard last week, the all-conquering Pan Pan will be opening the new space at Smock Alley with their production of A Dollhouse starring last week's podcast guest the beautiful Judith Roddy um, Bewley's Cafe Theatre Have Love All which is back uh, haven't got an amazing response earlier this year I think that's back only for this week though so uh, so get in there uh, sooner rather than later and that'll be followed by Joist written by Donal O'Kelly and performed by Katie O'Kelly uh, and that's directed by Sirica Fox um, that'll be well worth checking out um, Second Ages production of the Scottish play is at the Civic out in Talla and then as we look around the country up to Belfast White Star of the North directed by the brilliant Des Kennedy is on at the Lyric Theatre and heading south down to Cork um, Fred and Alice is at the Half Moon and that's been getting great reviews down there Uh, so that's certainly something to check out if you get the chance while you're down there um Carthaginians from the great Frank McGuinness is at the Everyman and that's going to be followed by Prime Cuts production of Shoot the Crow so look that is episode 21 in the books we will be back next week for another chat with another of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week <laughs>